Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we'll be interviewing somebody who's pretty dope, Desmond Mead. I hope you all listen to his story, buy his book for sure, but understand where he's come from. And we'll talk about everything that he's been through and for Florida politics, which in itself is a whole nother mouthful. But before we get to Desmond, I wanted to talk about normalizing paternity leave. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, but we're going to talk about normalizing paternity leave and pushing back against the nonsense that we've seen from conservatives around my good friend and transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, taking paternity leave after the birth of his new twins. Here's the Tucker Carlson clip. But still, the White House does not seem concerned. Pete Buttigieg has been on leave from his job since August after adopting a child. Paternity leave, they call it, trying to figure out how to breastfeed. No word on how that went. But now he's back in office as the transportation secretary, and he's deeply amused, he says, to see that dozens of container ships can't get into this country. And now you get a chance to hear my friend Secretary Buttigieg and his response. I guess he just doesn't understand the concept of bottle feeding, let alone the concept of, of paternity leave. Uh, but what's really strange is that, uh, you know, um, this is from a side of the aisle that used to claim the mantle of being pro-family. Uh, what we have right now is an administration that's actually pro-family. And uh, I'm blessed to be able to experience that, you know, as an employee. Now, y'all all know I loathe, loathe to give Tucker Carlson any airtime because practically he's trash. But I want to take a moment here to first congratulate Pete and Chaston on the birth and adoption of their twins. As a twin father, this is so important. And I also want to normalize our conversations around paternity leave. Only 9% of U.S. employers offer paid paternity leave to all male employees, and 76% of fathers are back to work within a week after the birth or adoption of their child, according to the Society for Human Resource Management. When men were asked why they were back to work so soon, even if they were offered some form of leave, they often said that the stigma attached to men taking leave kept them from bonding with their child in those crucial first months of infancy. As someone who almost lost my wife during the birth of our twins, I thank God that I had the flexibility to take leave. Shout out Pete Strom during the first year of my twins' life, to be there for them and my wife. I want every man to not only have that opportunity, but I also feel that they can take the opportunity and not feel ridiculed by assholes like Tucker Carlson. As trash as Tucker is, the sentiment he expressed mocking men for taking leave is the stigma that makes many men think they have to choose between their career ambition and bonding with their newborn and family when a child is born or adopted. We've got to do better as employers and as humans for fathers. So fuck you, Tucker, and congratulations to Pete and Chaston. And that's that on that. Now on to a great show we have with none other than Desmond Mead. Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today is a special episode for me. I'm actually wearing my Black Father's Rock shirt. I got to pull it down so you guys can see it if you're actually viewing this. But it's more important because I have somebody who's a hero of mine and probably doesn't even know that they're a hero. We've only interacted a few times in person. But the perseverance and patience this brother has is probably second to none. None other than Desmond Mead. What's going on, man? Hey, my brother. How you doing? 
I'm good, man. I, let me tell you my admiration before we jump in. You know, I, I write a lot about my father who was shot in the Orangeburg Massacre and the Civil Rights Movement back in 68. And I always say he could have lashed out uh, at his enemies with righteous anger, but instead he believed in what Abraham Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Just before we get into my, my, my questions that I have for you today, how have you been able to cope, survive, make it this far, give yourself the grace that you deserve? How, why are you still and how are you still standing? <laughs> well, Kari, that's a that's a good question, man. You know, I, I think somebody asked me something similar uh, the other day. And, and my response was, man, when you have been where I've been, you know, um, in the depths of hell, homeless, you know, living on the street like an animal, addicted to drugs, as a matter of fact, crack cocaine. Right. And, and, and just out there the way I was. You know, the things that we that I'm facing now, like kind of pales in comparison. Right. Yeah. And so being able to overcome those obstacles have just given me some type of inherent hope. Right. And, and inherent faith, because if I was able to get through that situation in my life at that period in my life, then, you know, what I'm facing now, you know, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. We'll get over it. Man, that's a good that's a good outlet. Look, I know I kind of skipped that. Most listeners always say I start with the same question and I do. I had to get that out of the way because that was on my heart. And the, the country Wayne always says a sizzling in my spirit. But we mm-hmm. usually start our episodes by by our guests walking us through the arc of their career. Uh, but for you, I want to talk about the arc of your activism for our listeners who don't know you. Walk us through the circumstances in your life that inspired your activism around voting rights, particularly uh, with respect to justice-involved residents. And that's what I call them now, justice-involved. I, I love that. I love that. It's, it's a whole lot better than the other words that they used to use, right? And they call y'all <laughs> anything but, but, ch- but children of God, don't they? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I appreciate the intentionality uh, uh, that you're bringing to this conversation as it relates to how we're being identified, you know, and the work that so many other folks have done throughout this country. Um, but, you know, my my story, especially when it talks about the level of my activism, I think it really I think it starts, man, where you know I typically start my story, man, when I was standing in front of railroad tracks waiting on the train to come so I can jump in front of it. You know, uh, at the time being homeless, being addicted to to crack cocaine, being unemployed and recently released from prison, I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And, I, and so you know, I, I waited on a train to come, but that train never came, you know, and, you know, in that process, you know, especially crossing the tracks and really asking myself, you know, if I would have died that day, how many people would come to my funeral? It really started this conversation internally about the significance of my time on, on this planet. You know, what have I done with my time? What have I done with the relationships I've had, you know, uh, friendships, you know, throughout the country? And, you know, it just so what, happened. What took that, you to that? What took you to that point of standing on those tracks? Man, you know, uh, number one, being hooked on crack is no joke. right? It is no <laughs> joke whatsoever, man. And I tell you, it, it, it would take you to a place. And it took me, you know, I mean, I was sleeping behind dipsy dumpsters in abandoned buildings, you know, and then the night before. Uh, I was in front of those railroad tracks. I actually slept on the bus bench for the first time. You know, because previously I'm sleeping somewhere where everybody can't see me, you know, because, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm ashamed of, you know, the the conditions I was living yeah. in. And I didn't want my friends or family just to 
drive by or roll up, run up on me and see me in that in that condition. And so I always like hid. But the night before, you know, I slept on a bus bench right there in the busy and uh, on a busy road. And I didn't care who saw me. I was just at the bottom because earlier that evening, you know, um, and, and I wrote about this, I think, in my book. I went to a church to ask the pastor just to pray for me because I was desperate. Oh, wow. And the pastor actually put her hand on my shoulder, pointed to another gentleman and told me to make an appointment for the next day. You know, and, and that really kind of blew my mind. I'm like, woman, don't you know that how desperate I am? And I, I to come in last, and ask for prayer. I know. Yeah, just prayer. You know, what I'm saying? I told her, I don't want your money. I don't want anything. I just want you to pray for me. And anyway, I remember walking out of that church thinking, man, even God has turned his back on me. You know, and that was that was it. That was it. And so that next day, as I was approaching railroad tracks, you know, my mind went to a story a few weeks earlier about a gentleman in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who committed suicide by train. And I became fixated with that story. And as I approached the tracks, at least when I approached the tracks, I stopped. And I just was thinking, man, how much pain am I going to feel? You know, is this going to be quick? Whatever. But I was there and I, I wouldn't move. I wouldn't move. Um, and, but like I said, but by the grace of God, that, that train didn't come. But anyway, you know, going through, you know, walking the block a couple blocks further after that and checking myself in the drug treatment after that, you know, um, moving back into a homeless shelter. And while they're deciding to enroll in a, a local college there, you know, I one of the things I did in addition to that was get involved in community service, because during my time in drug treatment, you know, I, I, I had an epiphany, I should say, because Rosa Parks passed away that same year and, and seeing uh, the outpouring of love and, and sorrow. And, you know, as her body laid in state in the return of the Capitol, kind of like it, it set something off inside of me. And I remember screaming at the television talking about that's it. You know, and, and really my brain was scrambling, trying to plan my own funeral. And I'm going to tell you something, Bakari. It was eerily similar to what we seen uh, for Kobe and Gigi. Yeah. I that was what I was envisioning. But the only difference was it was going to be in the Miami Dolphins football stadium and the chairs are going to be on the field. I mean, standing room only. Right. But going through that process and then trying to figure out how can I get that type of audience? You know, um, <laughs> at first I only came up with either you have to be a movie star or, not, or an athlete. And, you know, I didn't think I could be an athlete because my knees were bad. But, you know, I tell folks, man, that um, at the time, all I could think about was Denzel Washington when I thought about movie stars. Right. And I was like, man, I know I'm not a bad looking brother, but I didn't think I was Denzel Washington type of handsome. Thank God I didn't take a, think of Forrest Whitaker at the time because maybe that would have convinced me to you know, give it a shot. But I decided that maybe I can do what Rosa Parks did. Maybe I can take the pain the suffering and so that, that that low self-esteem that led me to the railroad tracks and packaging in such a way to help others. And, and that could then, you know, of course, multiply. And pretty soon there'll be a lot of people who can trace some type of improvement in their lives back to the work that I've done. And so there, there's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them right now. So you have succeeded. If life ended today, if today yeah. was the day that he came down and the rapture was upon us, 
people would be able to look at you and say, job well done. Walk our listeners through the fight for Amendment 4. And what does Amendment 4, what what does Amendment 4 do? And what is the Florida voter, the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition? Talk to me about what that is. Yeah, so Florida Rights Restoration Coalition was, um, initially it was uh, a loosely, a loosely put together coalition of organizations uh, throughout the country and uh, the state of Florida uh, as a project um, that was, um, I think, co-started by like the ACLU, the Brennan Center, Citizen Project. And um, that was back in 2003. Uh, and I ended up incorporating uh, FRRC, uh, that's our acronym, uh, in 2011 when I discovered it wasn't even an entity. And so I, when I created it, our founding board members were all people who've been justice impacted. And um, our focus mainly at the time was how do we change the, fel- uh, the felony disenfranchisement policies in Florida? Because at the time, Florida was one of four states that instituted a lifetime ban on anyone that was convicted of a felony offense, no matter what that felony offense was. And um, at some point, I think it was in 2011, I believe it was when uh, the current governor at the time was uh, Rick Scott rolled back uh, some policies that we had fought for uh, and made it extremely difficult for people to actually have their civil rights restored through the office of uh, executive clemency. And when he did that, you know, um, folks walked away. I'll be honest with you. Uh, and But the problem was I couldn't walk away because all the people that walked away, they could have voted the next day. You know, I, along with at that time, 1.58 million people in Florida could not vote. And so eventually what happened was when I looked at how easy it was for an elected official to determine which American citizen get to vote and which American citizen don't get to vote, that was scary as heck. And I felt that that was way too much power for any politician to have, no matter what political party that they belong to. Right. And I believe that that should be taken out of their hands and put in the hands of people. And so I was inspired to launch a ballot initiative, which I, you know, I did uh, officially in 2014 that sought to restore voting rights to people once they have completed their sentence. And in in 2018, man, we were um, were very successful. We had over 5.1 million people who voted uh, for, uh, at the time that was called Amendment 4, and um, over 1.4 million people in Florida now had an alternative pathway because prior to that, the only way that you could have a shot at even being able to vote again was that you would have to go up to the governor and basically beg him. You know, you have to grovel at the needs of politicians. And I don't think that, you know, any American citizen should have to do that. You never lied about that. I mean, that <laughs> that is a mouthful because it prevented access for people who look like me and you. Oh, most definitely. So Florida, Florida voters overwhelmingly approved Amendment 4. What did Florida Republicans do after voters approved Amendment 4? And and where does it stand now? You know, um, when we when we passed Amendment 4, there was um, a debate that emerged. And basically uh, what it boiled down to was determining what constituted completion of sentence. And, you know. It's funny because I, I, what I, I say a lot is that is the arrogance of elected officials or politicians arrogance because you know this policy has been in place was in place in Florida for over 150 years, right? And no one lifted a finger to do anything about it 
But the minute you know, the citizens decided to take matters into their own hands, then as soon Correct. as we're done, politicians are coming and saying, OK, now we want to tell you all how, how it's supposed to be done. And and, and so they came up with um, uh, a definition of completion of sentence that included paying outstanding legal financial obligations. And so because of that, they passed some legislation, I think it was Senate Bill 7066, uh, that required the payment of outstanding fines, fees, restitution, costs. Um, and just explain to folk real quick, because people think when they talk about fines, fees, and costs. Now, restitution, that's different, right? Restitution Fine, is different. Fines, fees, and costs. When you go in and you pay a ticket, the court costs, fines, and fees sometimes are 100, 200, 300, 400% what the ticket is. <laughs> well, listen, we talk about we talk about felony convictions now, though. And so it could be even more, you know. Yeah. And so especially when you talk about fines, they can range anywhere from one hundred dollars to thousands of dollars. Uh, and, and, and the system that we have in place here in Florida as it relates to the fines and fees and costs is nothing but a shell game. It's something that the legislature uh, uh, devised. Right. To avoid having to figure out how to fund the courts. And so they put the ball back into the uh, uh, court's uh, hand. But the problem is, is that the courts have no reasonable expectations of collecting more than nine to 10 percent of the fees that it that they assess, you know. And so, you know, I mean, when you're trying to you can't get blood from a rock, you know, and so when you're taxing poor people, you know, know, and you know that there's no expectations for them or, or ability for them to repay it, then you're just creating or or a bigger problem, I should say, or exasperating an existing problem. And so there is a difference because, you know, what we argue was there are two types of legal financial obligations, those that are punitive in nature and then those that are administrative in nature. Right. And so, you know, some there are some statutes in, 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 in states that says basically if you commit a crime, right, and found guilty, then in addition to a possible jail uh, uh, sentence, or prison sentence could be a monetary fine. And then there's, you know, what we, that's what we call punitive, right? And so that's a fine. And then of course, if you cause some harm to a victim uh, and that victim had to come out their pocket, like you broke somebody's car window. Correct. Of if, course. You know, that's restitution. That's restitution. That's punitive. But then you have the, uh, the cost of doing business in court and that's your various fees and court costs that can, yep that can just vary from one extreme to the, to the other. And so what the legislature did was group everything together and say, no, y'all just got to pay all of that. Right. One good thing about the legislation though, was that we did get um, a provision in that legislation that allowed the courts to actually waive uh, uh, those fines and fees. But, you know, overall, you know, you're talking about tens of billions of dollars, I believe in outstanding fines and fees um, when you add it all up and we know that there are a lot of people, I, I believe 774,000 people who was impacted of the 1.4 million who had some type of legal financial obligation that they would have to satisfy before being able to register the vote. And so, um, you know, listen, we knew it was coming. We had a Republican dominated legislature. We had a governor who was a Republican, you know, every I mean, the Senate president, the speaker of the House, everybody's Republican. They say that's what they want and they're going to get what they want because they basically had the supermajority. And so we just rolled up our sleeves and tried to, you know, 
uh, soften the blow and then also try to lay out a foundation to actually respond to that. And, you know, our best, you know, our, our best line has always been where other people see obstacles, we see opportunities. So we went out there, man. We raised over $27 million last year um, to help people pay off their fines and fees. And, and we, we, we engage with attorneys throughout the state and the country who volunteer their time pro bono to uh, represent people in court and review cases to try to determine what people owe because that system was all confusing too as well because the state don't even know what to tell you as far as how much you owe and what you need to pay. And so we had to navigate that process uh, during COVID, the whole nine yards. Uh, but we were able to to actually pay out over $27 million uh, in funds and free a clear pathway for over 44,000 individuals uh, to have their rights restored. But the other part of that that people don't talk about, because a lot of time we talk about the problem, right? And, and, and we talk about it almost from a pessimistic uh, point of view. But when you do the math, you know, Amendment 4 cleared the way for 1.4 million people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and these fines and fees impacted 774,000 people. So when you do the math, you have over 600,000 returning citizens that don't have this impediment that can register right then and there. And in a state like Florida, where we typically presidentials are decided by, you know, one or two points, adding 600,000, we had more than enough to cover the gap. And so what we found is this, you know, I I call it the um, Juneteenth uh, effect, right? Uh, And because we know in Juneteenth, uh, the slaves in Galveston didn't find out they were free till a couple of years later, right? Well, we have we have people in Florida who are returning citizens who don't even know about Amendment Four, don't even realize that they have the right to vote, right? This is is the same uh, type of impact that we see throughout the country, right? I mean, if people, imagine people if people weren't vote. going to space. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't going to space, you could spend money making sure those individuals knew. Pretty much. Pretty much. And, 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 and listen, we, we're working hard to try to make that happen, man. And we're doing it just, you know, one person at a time, you know, um, we've made a lot of success. So let me tell you, uh, last year, over a hundred thousand returning citizens voted right in, in, in the 2020 election in the state of Florida and over 177,000 of their family members who never voted before, right. Got registered and actually voted. Right. And so, that to me is, is, is a huge win. I know we got a lot of work to do, man, but you know, there's, there's a lot of positive things that there are a lot of encouraging things that are happening, you know, may not get the, uh, a lot of attention, but it's going down in Florida and, and, and returning citizens are, are, are forced to be reckoned with, man, you know, in Florida, in Louisiana, in North Carolina, in California, Man, there's a there's a, a sleeping giant. Man, I can't. Even, I mean, look, I, I'm thinking. You know, I'm over here, shit, thinking about what we can do in South Carolina. <laughs> like, <laughs> although we have really good, we have really good returning citizens. We're actually some of the more progressive because as soon as you're off your papers in South Carolina, mm-hmm. meaning probation, uh, whatever, you can act. You actually your your rights are restored to vote. But why, the reason why I got you here, bro, is to talk about your new book, "Let My People Vote." Talk talk to me about what it's about and what inspired you to write it. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, if, if part inspiration, part having a wife that knows her business and, and, and keep your toes to the fire. Man, I know um, about all of yeah. those things, man. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife, Sheena, she's been on, she was on me for a while. 
uh, to write the book. And then as we were approaching the 2020 election, you know, she was like, you know what, baby, this is the time for your book to come out. Right. Because here we are, we're getting ready to engage in the probably the most pivotal uh, uh, presidential election this country has ever seen. And your work had a role is going to have a role in its outcome. Right. And, you know, so I, you know, I just buckled down and wrote it. And the other part, though, on what I was uh, inspired by was to share the story, man, because what I found. Right. Because I remember when um, when Time magazine had named me one of the 100 most influential people in the world and I went to its gala uh, in, in New York. And I, was, I remember talking to one of the time executives and telling him, listen, why do y'all put the rock on y'all cover? Right. They had Dwayne, the rock Johnson on there. Right. I was like, man, y'all should have put me on the cover. Right. And it wasn't just me being conceited or anything, but what I, what I, yeah, told well, it him, wasn't you being humble either, but go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was being, believe it or not, I was being humble because I'm telling you, I was the, the, the reason why I said that was because People in this country need to know that you don't need to be a movie star. Exactly. You don't need to be an athlete. You don't need to be a billionaire or even a politician to have an impact in your community. And you your can be a returning and citizen and still yeah. you could sleep on benches. Wait, a you crackhead. Can, you could be that, you could be homeless. You could be suicidal. You, you know, you could be in and out of prison, whatever. I mean, you can bounce back from anything. And I thought that having my picture on that on that cover would convey that message that we all have uh, within us an opportunity and what it takes to actually be impactful in our communities. And I thought that was so important. And so this book seeks to accomplish that to let, cause I'm telling you, there are people out there that's facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. There are people out there that may have made mistakes and think that their life is over and that they'll never amount to anything. And they just relegated to living in whatever lifestyle they're living now. Right. They need to know that they don't have to stay there. They need to know that they can do great things or even greater things than what I've done. All right. Now today I'm uh, like a MacArthur genius Fellow, I mean, That's what crazy. does that say? We had we had two people who were formerly incarcerated that are not genius fellows. Who are those? And and um, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Oh yeah, I know Reginald Betts. Right. Yeah. And so, what does that say to other people who are incarcerated? What does that you say? You can do to absolutely people? anything, man. That's anything. so dope, man. That's good. Hey, That's how did writing important. how did writing this book change you? Because when you go through this process, you find out stuff about yourself, right? <laughs> How did writing this book change you? And what do you want readers to get out of it? Man, listen, one of the things uh, uh, I think that, well, definitely what I want readers to get out of it is that, you know, no matter where you are in life, there's greater things in store for you, especially if you're allowing yourself to be driven by love, right? And not personal gains. You know, I, I could tell you when, when I was in when drug treatment and I used to get on my knees and pray, you know, I didn't pray for the nice house, the beautiful wife, the great career. I didn't pray for any of this. Only thing I prayed for was that God would give me the strength, stamina, wisdom, discernment to do his work. Right. And I knew that for me, his work meant that I just had to find ways to improve the lives of other people. And so, Bakari, I'll be straight up with you. I'm not being facetious or anything. When I was on my knees praying, I was praying for you. Didn't even know you then. Right. Yeah. I was praying for people, I was praying for humanity, and I committed myself to that. And I and I believe that what I want people to get out of this book, man, is that if you focus on doing God's work, 
right? And allow him to handle your business, he'll do a much better you job. You know, you sound you like, if I close my eyes, you sound like T.D. Jakes, who says, just stay the path, stay dedicated to that goodness and the blessings will follow. It will come. And man, let me tell you, it will blow your mind. I, I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that I would be where I'm at today. Never. Matter of fact, you take me back three years, uh, four years ago, I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that, right? And so the blessings just keep coming and I've never asked for it. I've never prayed for it. And all I wanted to do was to help other people because I realized early on, man, you know, we heard the song, there's no, there's no me without you, yeah. right? And, 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 and so what I tell people when, when, when I speak of love, I'm talking about wanting for your neighbor what you want for yourself. Right. And so if, if there's something that you want, then you fight for someone else to get it right. Not for yourself to get it. And so I feel that when you lift up other people, when you strengthen other people, oh, my God, everybody benefits. A rising tide lifts all boats. And so that that is the main thing I think I want people to to get out of it. What I've learned, uh, Bakari, is some very interesting things. But one of, one of them I can't share with you is that. We are an evolving people. Oh, right? If you're not evolving, you're dead. There you go. Something's wrong with you. And so if you're thinking the same thing today that you thought like two years ago or even uh, uh, 12 months ago, then, you know, you're, you're being stagnant, you know. And so there's with me, what I, what I discovered was because of my natural inclination to just want to learn or want to understand, you know, want to uh, get other people's perspectives. I think it is it is just constantly shaped me. It's a constant evolution that I'm going through. And so the Desmond that may have done an interview five years ago is not exactly the same. No, I got Desmond the I got the best Desmond today on the show. I got the best <laughs> the best version of you. Before I let Today, you go, you got it. Before I let you go, let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Talk about the f- Democrats in Washington and the filibuster. Um, it's been driving me crazy. We have some Democrats who are more invested in keeping the filibuster intact than they are passing strong voting rights legislation. What message do you think that sends to black voters in places like Georgia, Texas and Florida who have had their rights under attack? <laughs> oh, you're trying to set me up on that one. No, I've been, I'm like, trust me, I've been in this. They tell you, I've been in shit all, all week about me, this. So there's, there's a couple of things. First of all, you know, it's, it's problematic just us talking about Democrats and Republicans. Right. I'm going to tell you when I look at, you know, just the history of felon disenfranchisement, I've got to understand that the people that were 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 fighting. Matter of fact, were murdering my ancestors. Right. To keep me from getting the right to vote that I have today were Democrats. Right. And so what I realized is that, you know, it's hard to to kind of like explain it in, in, in a sense. But I think that voting is less political than people are making it, right? It should I be. I think vote, that's right. Uh, and so when I look at what's going on with the filibuster, with voter suppression laws that's being implemented uh, predominantly in, in conservative, uh, dominated uh, uh, legislators, right? Legislatures. Um, what I see is just an attack against democracy, right? From both sides, right? Because let me tell you, there was a time like in New York when you only had one day to vote. Yeah. 
right? One day to vote. And so there are just so many. And, and then when you talk about even the uh, uh, redistricting and, and drawing lines, man, both sides took advantage of that. And so it was about what kind of advantage can one party have over the next party? And while they're going back and forth, guess what's lost in the conversation? Right. The lives of real people, Yeah. right? You know, when, like, like if I run for office, you know, it's not running for office to be the, the, the president or the governor for the for Democrats or, the, or, or for, for Republicans or for the party. It's about being a, 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 a public servant for the people. Right. And so you get caught up in that. And then you seeing that Democrats and, and Republicans play differently. Right. And, and Republicans are hard. We've seen it here in Florida. You step out of line in the Republican Party, they will check you and check you hard. But in the Democratic Party, they don't play as hard. And it's really hard when one one team is playing uh, a rough and the other team trying to be soft tap around, soft tapping around. You're not sure. going to get what you get, you know, what you need, I should say. And so there are so many, you know, I, I, I really encourage people to really focus more on who's being a public servant rather than who's being a politician. And, and, and I think the difference is, and we've seen it with COVID, that when politicians are engaged, people die. This country get divided. There's a whole lot of fear. Uh, uh, I wasn't expecting you to go there, but that's actually so true. That was really blunt. I wasn't expecting that 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 ending. Let me ask you this question, though. Let me let me, let me ask you this. In 2022 is coming up. Talk about the work you're going to do because it's an important election in Florida. So my last question to you is: outside of should tell people where they can buy the book, when they can buy the book, we're not going to leave without that. But my last question is like: what are you, what's the work you're going to do? Because you got a really important election. You got a bad woman down there running in Val Demings. I know she's a former chief of police. I know people give a hell about that, but she's very good at what she does. So what do you she's been a great, uh, great United States congressperson for sure. So what, what do you what do you what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> what are we doing for 2022? Well, first and foremost, I believe that, you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Right. We know that no matter how strong the other links are, mm-hmm. it, that chain could only hold as much as the weakest link can hold. And I believe that applies to our society, that we could only be as great, as strong, as those who are most weakened in our society, right? And, and, and so our goal is to strengthen the most weakened, the ones, the, the groups of people that's been marginalized and, and, and pushed to the edges or the fringes of our society. I think that's the ultimate goal. And, and, and we know that the two main, bu- three buckets that uh, accomplish this, is the bucket that uh, 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 blocks people from access to democracy, right? You weaken them by weakening their voice. Uh, blocking people from access to participate in the economy. Like when returning citizens can't get jobs, can't get education, can't get housing, right? They're, getting, they're being weakened. And of course, that narrative that says that some people's lives are less valuable than others. And so we are focusing on those buckets in a way that connects with why people should be civically engaged as we're continuing to help people with outstanding fines and fees pay off their uh, debt. There's over 191,000 returning citizens right now in the state of Florida who are registered to vote, right? And you talk about congressional elections, the last one we had was decided by around 16,000 votes, all right? So we've got more than enough. And I think what is more imperative to us is not about pushing Democrat or Republican, but but forcing it, uh, people who are uh, trying to run for office to deal with the issues that impact 
people with felony convictions and their family members. And when we get people to do that, everybody benefits. Everybody. Right? And, and so we don't lean left. We don't lean right. We lean straight forward into issues that impact people with felony convictions. And nobody get a free pass. You know, I've said this before. Our people have died and, 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 and struggled too hard for me to just give my vote away because someone is a Democrat, give my vote away because someone is black or is a woman or the first this or first that. I don't I don't I don't get off on those on those on those identifiers. What I get off on is someone who can convince me that they're a public servant and they will place the needs of the people even over their party politics, yep. right? Or their even personal preferences. That's what I get off on. And that's what, that's who I'm going to vote for. Man. And that is something that's sacred, right? That's something I voted in my first presidential election last year, ever. And I'm over 50 years old, right? And I'm going to tell you that that experience has, 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 has transformed me to understand the sanctity, not only the power, but the sanctity of my vote. And I'm not going to let it get defiled so easily. Where can people buy your book? When can they buy it? Man, listen, they got uh, some some good publishers. I mean, some good bookstores out there. Mahogany. uh, Shout out to Mahogany Books for sure in D.C. Yes. um, We got uh, Amazon, uh, um, all kinds. I mean, they can go to my website, DesmondMead.com. I have a list of, uh, of, 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 of businesses that are selling the book. And they definitely should get a copy. I'm telling you. Uh, no, uh, it's, it's 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 worth the read, man. So yeah. my props to you, my brother. You know, I love you. Anything I can do for you. You are a friend of mine, a friend of the show. Thank you, Desmond Mead, for coming on the Bakari Sellers podcast. Brother Bakari, you are already doing it, man. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Peace be easy. Before I let you go, I think we have to talk about this real quick. And it's, it's paining me to say, but I have to commend Coach Prime down there in Jackson, Mississippi, for selling out with over 50,000 fans at Jackson State's homecoming in their win against Alabama State this past Saturday, while other HBCUs in the SWAC tend to lead the FCS in attendance. I've never seen a capacity crowd at an HBCU game in years. The fact that he's doing that, hosting over 200 recruits per game, And changing the face of HBCU football is something we should all commend. And trust me, I was not a Coach Prime fan. Still really ain't. Don't think they're going to win the swag. But here we are. So cheers to Coach Prime and the staff at Jackson State. And that's that on that. We'll see you guys all on Thursday.